Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you all today. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you for the work that you have done on our behalf through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would work now by your Spirit to make these truths clear to our minds, that you would use them to move our hearts to worship you and to live in light of them. Would you strengthen our faith today? Would you be at work today? All for your glory. We pray and ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, today is Reformation Sunday, as uh, Sarah mentioned. Uh, next week, we are going to start the book of Ephesians. We'll be preaching through that book, and I'm super excited to start preaching through Ephesians. That's going to be fantastic. But today, we are looking at uh, the Reformation. And the Protestant Reformation, it was a movement in the, the 16th and the 17th centuries, that is the 1500s and 1600s, to reform the Catholic Church because of, of doctrinal and moral corruption that undermined the true gospel. And we might ask, why should we take a week to celebrate the Reformation? Well, there's several reasons, because it restored the Word of God to the center of Christian life and worship, because it reestablished the importance of family, the value of music, the dignity of work, but most of all, because at its heart, it was a recovery of the true gospel. So today we're going to look at the five solas of the Reformation. We'll hope to see what they are and why they're important. And the message for us today is this, trust and celebrate the gospel truths that are encapsulated in the five solas. Now each one of these deserves its own sermon, and maybe we will do that next year. Uh, today is going to be a historical and theological overview of how each one of these addresses an important issue in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, maybe this is the very first time that you've ever heard of the five solas, so I want to state them in brief before we dive in. The word sola is Latin for alone or only, and that is where the stress is at in each one of these little expressions. So sola scriptura, scripture alone, is the doctrine that scripture is the only inspired and final authority for the church. Sola gratia, grace alone, is the doctrine that our salvation from beginning to end is a gift of God's grace alone. Solus Christus is the doctrine that Christ alone is the basis on which sinners are justified. Sola fide, faith alone, is the doctrine that the sinner receives the redemption that Jesus accomplished by faith alone. And because of these truths, soli deo gloria, all glory belongs to God alone. So at the heart of the Reformation is a recovery of the true gospel encapsulated in these five solas, and that is why the Reformers were willing to die for these truths. That is what was at stake. Now, are these five solas important for us at GFC? And the answer is yes. The five solas are the 
the conclusion and the capstone of our statement of faith here at the church. Now, the start of the Reformation is dated from October 31st, 1517. That is when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. Luther was born in 1483 to a world dominated by the Roman Catholic Church. He was the son of a, of a copper miner, and his father had saved to put Luther through law school. But Luther's path took a sharp turn during a thunderstorm when Luther was nearly struck by lightning, and he took it as a sign of God's judgment. And he cried out in terror to the only mediator that he knew, to St. Anne, the patron saint of miners. He cried out, help me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. Luther kept his vow, joined the Augustinian monastery in Erfurt, really ticked his dad off at the same time. But Luther was deeply, deeply troubled in his soul. And the problem that plagued Luther was this. How can sinful man be made right before a holy God? Now, he tried to find acceptance with God through good works, but he was asking himself this question, have I fasted and watched and prayed and confessed enough? In short, am I good enough? Have I done enough? Now, Luther, Luther posted his 95 theses on All Hallows' Eve. That's the day before All Saints' Day when pilgrims would visit uh, relics in churches, and they would uh, appeal to the extra merits of the saints in hopes of trying to satisfy God's demand for righteousness. According to Roman Catholic Church, purgatory is where Christians go, Christians go, when they first die before they get to heaven. It's a place of, quote, purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. So the church sold indulgences which reduced your time in purgatory, which is effectively then cleansing you of your sin and helping you get in to heaven. And the common belief at the time in Luther's day was that indulgences saved you. For example, by visiting Prince Frederick's collection, he was the prince of, of Saxony, if you visited his collection in Wittenberg, that's where Luther was, and you made the right donations a person could receive from the Pope, quote, indulgences for the reduction of purgatory, either for themselves or for others, to the extent of 1,902,202 years and 270 days, end quote. Now, the Roman Catholic Church made a fortune selling this trash. Pope Leo X wanted uh, money, he needed money, uh, for St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. And there was a German bishop, Albert of Brandenburg, who offered to pay the Pope 10,000 ducats to become the bishop of Mainz. Now, he already had two territories where he was the bishop. Officially, canon law said, no, you can't have a third. But the Pope needed the money, and so a deal was struck. Albert took a loan from the imperial bankers in order to pay Pope Leo... And Pope Leo graciously issued a special indulgence that he could sell in order to repay the imperial bankers. Now, this indulgence was a very 
uh, unique, very special. It was an unprecedented indulgence, which would forgive sins past, present, and future. Enter John Tetzel, who was the one who went around selling it. So for a price, people could have perfect forgiveness, peace with God, and freedom from purgatory. Tetzel even had a marketing slogan to go along with this sale. It went like this, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Once word got out, everybody wanted in on the action. People came from all over Germany to buy this, including people from Luther's own parish in Wittenberg, and Luther was outraged by this, so he posted his 95 theses on the door of the church. Now, what he was looking for was a debate on the sale of indulgences. He, he, this, this, in itself, nailing this to the door was not an act of defiance or rebellion. This was the common way that, that they would invite the academic community to have debate. His hope was reform. He wanted to reform the church. Now, a printer got hold of this and made copies of it, and within weeks, the 95 Theses were all over Europe. That was the spark that started the flames of the Reformation. But at its root was the question of salvation. See, Luther's problem and ours is this. How can sinners be made right with a holy God? If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 3, and you might want to keep your finger in Romans 3 and Ephesians 2, because we're going to be in those two texts primarily today. Romans 3, 9 and 10 says that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23, we all fail to love God, to prize God as our highest treasure, to honor God as God, which is the essence of sin. We all fail in this. Therefore, none of us is righteous before God. None of us is right before God. And the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. So we need to be righteous, but every one of us fails, and none of us is righteous, and the wages of our sin is death. And when it says death, it doesn't just mean death physical death, because it's in contrast to eternal life. We're talking about eternal death, eternal separation from God and hell forever. This is our problem. The problem is, is that no human being is going to be justified, that is, counted righteous before God by works of the law, Romans three nineteen and 20. When I say works by works or good works, I mean obeying God. So we're never going to be good enough We're never going to be able to earn our way into heaven through our own obedience. All the law of God does is just reveal our sin. It reveals the ways that we have disobeyed him and how we deserve God's judgment. We all, all, all humanity stands justly condemned under the wrath of God for our sin. That's our problem. And hence the question, how in the world can sinners find deliverance from the wrath of God for our sin? Is there any way of escape? 
Yes. Praise God. That's the good news. That's why Christ came to provide this solution. The solution to the problem that the reformers found in the Bible is this, that we are brought from death to life. We are saved by God, from God's wrath by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, with Scripture alone as the final authority for these truths. So let's look at each one of these. First, sola scriptura, Scripture alone. A year before Luther posted his 95 theses, there was another uh, world-shaping publication. And that is, in 1516, Erasmus published the Greek New Testament. It's no coincidence that the Reformation was launched a year later. Access to the Scriptures was the foundation of the Reformation. Now, the conflict between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church was not about inerrancy, or the inspiration of Scripture. Rome affirmed both. The issue was about authority, specifically papal authority. Over the centuries, Rome had gradually come to the place where church tradition was put on par with Scripture, and the Pope and the magisterium were viewed as the final authority in matters of faith and practice. So this doctrine of sola scriptura affirms that the Scripture alone is God's inspired word and therefore is the only inerrant, final, and decisive authority for the church. So as Paul writes, all Scripture is breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. It was written down by men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1.21, so that what they wrote was exactly what God wanted written down to each word used. This is why the Bible is inerrant. That is, it is true and without error in all that it asserts. Now, that cannot be said of church tradition or councils or church leaders, as important as those things are, because none of those are God-breathed. This distinguishes the Scriptures from all other authorities, which are imperfect, and it places all other authorities under the final authority of God's word. Luther's confession at the Diet of Worms in 1521 expresses this well. Luther went there expecting to have a theological debate. Instead, what happened was, is they showed him a table of all of his works, and they, they said, are these yours? He said, yes. Then they said, do you recant? That's it. Do you take back what you have written? They gave him a day to consider. The next day, standing before Emperor Charles V, the leaders of the state, along with the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church, Luther made his famous confession. He says, Since then, your serene majesty and your lordships seek a simple answer. I will give it in this manner, plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it's well known that they often err and contradict themselves. I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither right nor safe to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. 
Now, his answer reflects this doctrine of sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the only infallible authority for the church. The scriptures are over popes and councils. They have to agree with what the scriptures say in order for them to have any authority at all. What's the biblical basis for this? One key text for Luther was Galatians 1, 6 through 9. It's why we read it this morning, but let me read this again this morning. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting, deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. The Galatians were, were struggling because they were being misled by a false gospel that added something to faith, namely circumcision and law-keeping. Paul says there is only one gospel, and if anyone says something else or preaches something else, then that person is false and they should be accursed. Even if it's an angel or a council or the pope. So Luther said, I consider it proper that the words of Scripture in which the saints are described as being deficient in merits. So Luther said, look, I look at the Bible and I say, the Bible says we don't have enough merit. Those words are to be preferred to to human words in which the saints are said to have more merits than they need. That's what the Catholic Church said. Like, not only do you have enough merit, but you got, some people have merit to spare. They can share it around. Luther says, for the Pope is not above but under the word of God, according to Galatians 1.8. The Bible says we have no merit to commend us to God. Rome said that some people have merit to spare. When man's word is contrary to God's word, then we must believe God rather than men. Now, this is not in any way to detract from the usefulness of sermons and commentaries and tradition and historic confessions. Those things are all useful for understanding the Scriptures. The point is to say that they're all subject to the Scriptures as the final authority for the church. That's the point. Now, this is still an issue in our own day. The current Pope, Pope Francis, has recently suggested that the Roman church can bless same-sex unions. But this contradicts the scriptures. It contradicts the biblical sexual ethic, and it needs to be rejected. Popes do not have the authority to change or to invent new doctrines. Charles V condemned Luther as a heretic, so now there's a a big price on his head, and for his safety, some of his friends came and they secretly stole him away to the Wartburg Castle, where he stayed for eight months. And while he's there, Luther translated the Bible into German, further fanning the flames of the Reformation. See, what the Reformers were doing was just bringing the church back to its foundation, the Scriptures. They didn't see themselves as inventors or creators, but as recovering the truth that had been lost or obscured. Luther explained the spread of the Reformation in this way. He said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, 
the words so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. To which I say, amen. So what is it that Luther and the reformers found in the scriptures? How had the Roman Catholic Church gone astray? Many ways, but in particular... How had it corrupted the true gospel? That's what the other solas are about. So second, sola gratia. Sola gratia, grace alone, is the doctrine that our salvation from start to finish is God's gift of grace alone. Again, the burning question for Luther is, how can sinners be made right before a holy God? Now in the monastery, Luther tried his best to find acceptance with God through works. He said this, when I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for almost 15 years with the daily sacrifice, tortured myself with fastings, vigils, prayers, and other various works. I earnestly thought to acquire my righteousness by my works. Works here is religious activity. Despite every effort, he could not find peace with God. Now, on a visit to Rome in 1510, Luther visited the Scala Sancta, which is the holy stairs. Supposedly, these were the, the same stairs that Christ ascended when he went before Pontius Pilate, and supposedly they had been brought from Jerusalem to Rome. The priests taught that if you scaled these stairs on your knees and said an hour father on each step and kissed each one, then you would get uh, forgiveness. You would have forgiveness for your sins. So Luther did that. And at the top, he looked back and Luther said to himself, who knows whether this is true. By the late medieval period, the Roman Catholic Church had become semi-Pelagian. Pelagius was a, a, a man who, or that thought, he was a man who thought that, that men, people, were naturally able on their own, apart from God's help, God's grace, they could obey God's commands and that their good works then could merit salvation. That was condemned as a heresy. But in Luther's day, the Church of Rome had become semi-Pelagian, and it still is, meaning that a person is saved by faith plus works. Salvation is a cooperative effort between God and the sinner. So la gratia is the reformer's response to this, the reformers taught, as Augustine did, that we are not saved in any way by our own merit. Rather, we are justified, we're declared righteous by God's grace alone. Humans are sinful by nature, Romans 3.10. We are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. So the sinner is not like a drowning man. Imagine with me somebody drowning in a lake, right? drowning man, and he just needs to do his part by reaching out to grab the life preserver that God has thrown out to him. No, the sinner is in a far, far worse position. He's dead. He is a lifeless corpse at the bottom of the sea. He's spiritually dead. And what did dead people do? Nothing. The sinner can do nothing. He cannot lift a finger to help save himself. If he is to be saved, it must be completely an act of God. For the reformer, sola gratia is essential to the true gospel. So Luther said this, 
But no man can be thoroughly humbled until he knows that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, devices, endeavors, will, and works, and depends entirely on the choice, will, and work of another, namely of God alone. Then he has come close to grace and can be saved. You see, the conflict over grace between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church, it was not a question of whether grace was needed. It was a question over the extent of that need. It's not mostly grace, so that God does most of the work in saving us, and we pitch in a little bit. Sola gratia means our entire salvation from start to finish is a result of God's grace alone. It's a gift. What's the biblical foundation for this? Look at Romans chapter 3, verses 24 to 25. We are justified, declared righteous, by His grace as a gift. It's not earned or deserved. And this happens through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I want you to notice in these verses, you see grace, Christ, and faith. Three of the five solas are right here. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with God. By grace you have been saved. This is Ephesians chapter 2. So while the passage from Romans 3 is talking about how we escape God's wrath by grace, Ephesians 2 is talking about how we're brought from spiritual death to life by God's grace alone. Just like Lazarus didn't bring himself back from the dead, we don't make ourselves spiritually alive. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 goes on to say, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God and not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Even our faith is a gift from God. Our salvation is totally God's work from start to finish. It is unmerited, undeserved. It is grace alone. But not only that, then after you are saved, the entire Christian life is lived by the grace of God. And so Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. See, after we're saved, yes, we we love and we serve and we obey Jesus. But even then, all of our works, they don't earn us anything because all of our works are motivated and accomplished by God's grace alone. So we're saved from God's wrath by grace alone, Romans 3. We're brought from death to life by grace alone, Ephesians 2. And we walk in holiness by grace alone, Titus 2, 11 and 12. So God's atoning work and God's regenerating work and God's sanctifying work is by grace alone, all of it. Why? so that God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Praise God. The question then becomes, well, where do we go then to to get this grace and salvation? And the answer is Christ alone. Third, solus Christus is the doctrine that we are made right before God on the basis of Christ alone. His righteousness, not our own. His mediation, not a priest. Not a saint, not Mary, not anyone else. 
Christ alone is our righteousness, not our works, not sacraments, not pious acts before relics and religious observances. Christ alone is our mediator, not Mary or the saints or a priest or a pope, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. Now, how is Jesus our righteousness? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 explains this to us. For our sake, God made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange. This is one of the most glorious doctrines in the Bible. This is what happens on the cross. This is how we are justified, how we're counted righteous in Jesus Christ. On the cross, God takes our sin and he credits it to Jesus' account. The theological word for that is imputed. He, he puts it on Jesus and he kills him for it. But that's not all that happens at the cross. At the same time, God takes Christ's righteousness and he credits it to our account. He imputes it to us so that we become his righteousness. Our righteousness is not our own. It's Jesus' righteousness. Jesus Christ was perfect. He never sinned. He has the righteousness of God. And you can't improve on that. Do you understand? You cannot add to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're constantly tempted as human beings by the thought that we need to somehow add to the righteousness that we have. It makes us feel good. We struggle to accept grace, but the scripture teaches that our righteousness is based on Christ alone. Now, God sent him as a propitiation by his blood. That's a big word. Propitiation means that Jesus' death for our sins satisfies God's justice. What's happening on the cross is that Jesus turns away God's wrath and makes God favorable to us. He makes God propitious to us. That is, favorably disposed to us. So that we're no longer enemies with God. We have peace with God. This is what Christ is doing on the cross. So Jesus' righteousness, his death and resurrection, is the only basis on which God's justice can be satisfied. It is the only basis for our redemption and our righteousness that is why Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. Now, when Luther was out in that thunderstorm, his thoughts did not turn to Jesus Christ to save him. Instead, he looked to Saint Anne. Luther came to realize the futility of looking to any other mediator than Jesus Christ. He came to see the futility of looking to his own works. Christ alone has the righteousness that we need to stand before God. Grace is mediated through Christ alone. Now, in the 16th century, life revolved around the church of Rome. As one author quipped about this situation, he said that the Roman Catholic Church had devolved, we could say degenerated, from the company of the saved to the salvation company. The church had changed from being a group of saved people to a business that sold salvation. 
Rather than looking to Christ alone for grace, people looked to the church, to the saints, to sacraments, to indulgences. The church taught that because of Christ and Mary and the other saints, there was a storehouse of grace that was held by the church, and they were the sole dispensers of that grace, so that people had to go to them for the, their salvation. The grace of Christ was mediated to the people through priests and through sacramental works. Luther and the reformers saw that this obscured the all-sufficient work of Christ. And so in 1520, Luther wrote the Babylonian captivity of the church in which he attacked the, the sacramental system which held God's people in captivity. From the cradle through baptism to the grave extreme unction, the Christian was dependent on the sacraments offered by a priest in order to receive grace to be saved. Luther saw only two sacraments in the effect of the Reformation teaching was to shift the focus from the clergy, from the church, to Christ alone. If we add anything to Christ, anything, be it our good works or another mediator, we not only destroy the gospel, we diminish Christ's work and we rob him of his glory as our only savior. Christ alone is the source of our salvation. So we must look to him alone in faith, trusting him to save us. The reformers were relentlessly Christ-centered because Jesus is the only way to heaven. So their, their books, their sermons, their worship, it was all Christ-centered. That stood in stark contrast to the man-centered religion of the Roman church. Now, in our own day, we are seeing a regression back into man-centered theology, albeit in different ways. We've reduced Christ as a means to the fulfillment of our own happiness. This is the health and wealth and prosperity gospel. Many of the books and sermons and much of the worship of our day is man-centered. What makes me feel good? It's why prominent pastors are compromising on the truth, because they want to please man. If we're going to see a reformation on our day, then we must hold and confess the doctrine of solus Christus. Fourth, sola fide, faith alone. How does a person then receive this salvation? The answer is sola fide, faith alone, is how we receive this salvation that Jesus accomplishes on the cross. We don't trust in ourselves, but in Jesus. How can we be made righteous before God? Through faith in Jesus. See, God, again, God cannot sweep our sin under the rug. He's holy, he's just, and he has to punish sin if he's going to remain just. I mean, if a judge let a, a guilty person off, we would say that judge is not just. But God isn't unjust. He's just, so he must punish sin. So how does he do that? Well, Jesus perfectly obeyed God, and on the cross, Jesus dies for our sin, not his. He's perfect. He had no sin. And God counts his righteousness to us. That's the great exchange. The point is this. We need perfect righteousness. This righteousness is a gift of God's grace alone. It is a righteousness that is found in Christ alone. And it is a righteousness that is received by faith alone. Luther expressed how important this doctrine of sola fide is when he said this, it is the article by which the church stands or falls. This doctrine of justification by faith alone 
So important. Rome argued that justification isn't by faith alone, but faith plus works. Yeah, you got to have faith, but it's not enough. You also have to have good works. But the problem is, is like we've already seen, we cannot be made righteous by our good works. In fact, all of our good works apart from Christ are tainted by sin and don't glorify God. Justification by faith. Faith is the one human response that is the exact opposite of depending on yourself. That's why it's by faith alone. Faith is depending not on yourself, but on another person, trusting someone else. So Romans 4.16 says that's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise might rest on grace. There's a a well-used illustration of what faith means. It's been used often. I want you to imagine, uh, my parents visited Niagara Falls this this, week, like a month ago. Imagine there's a tightrope stretched all the way across Niagara Falls, and there's a man who uh, goes across Niagara Falls on the tightrope pushing a a wheelbarrow. Uh, This was actually done by Charles Blondin, the guy in the picture in the 1800s. Okay, imagine you see this guy go back and forth on this tightrope several times, right? Back and forth, back and forth. It's amazing. And he comes to you and he says, hey, do you believe that I could push you across in this wheelbarrow. Now, if you say yes, that is not faith. It becomes faith when you climb in the wheelbarrow and you actually trust him to do it. See, biblical faith is not just saying, I agree, not just giving mental assent, I agree that Christ can save me. Biblical faith is actually trusting him to do it and trusting in him alone, nothing else. So we've seen in Romans 3 that the righteousness of God has been revealed, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In verse 25, it's received by faith. Again, in verse 28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. As we saw in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. We receive the gift of salvation, redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and righteousness by faith alone. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1. This is why, brothers and sisters, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is why God's wrath is gone and God's favor is upon you because of the righteousness of Christ alone received by faith. Now, Luther said that we are saved by faith alone, but the kind of faith that saves is never alone, meaning faith without works is dead. James 2.16. True saving faith always leads to good works, but I want to be very clear. Your good works do not save you. They are the, the faith is the, is the root And good works is the fruit that result from your faith. Good works don't save you, but they do show whether or not your faith is genuine, whether or not it's real. Finally, soli deo gloria. This doctrine is the capstone. It's the goal of the Reformation and all of their theology. This is the doctrine that all glory belongs to God alone. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, 
or yeah, through faith alone in Christ alone, so that all glory goes to God alone. You see, if any single part of our salvation depended on us, however small, then to that degree, we would deserve some of the glory, some of the credit. To that degree, we would no longer boast in Christ alone. However, since Christ alone is the founder and the finisher of our faith, since salvation is first to last a gift of grace, all glory belongs to God. Biblical foundation here, just a couple of texts. 2 Corinthians 4.15 For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. As more and more people get saved by God's grace through faith, it increases thanksgiving to God's glory. Again, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. We cannot boast in ourselves, in our own good works, because it's all God. We have no reason to boast except for boasting in God and what he has done for us. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. In love, God predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's the purpose of it all, for the praise of his glory, Ephesians 1, 12. Everything, everything is designed to humble man and exalt God. And so Luther said this, what shall we say then? How can we respond to such a great salvation? The only possible reply is to fall on our knees before our gracious God in humble awe at his eternal purpose, we ought to cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? You see, this shows us that our worship at church is not about entertainment. Worship is meant to exalt God and his glory. It shows us what the focus of our life should be as Christians. We don't exist for ourselves, but for God's glory. In Luther's day, the word vocatio meant calling, but they only applied it to church work. So monks and nuns and priests, they all had a calling. Everybody else, they just worked. But Luther taught that all professions and all roles are a calling from God. As a husband, a wife, a father, a son, a brother, a sister, they're all callings. You could be a, a miner, a lawyer, a baker, a farmer, a stonemason. All these professions, they're callings. You see, what Luther was doing was applying 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything can and should be done to God's glory. Later on, there was a German musician who would come to follow Luther's teaching. Johann Sebastian Bach. He signed all of his music with his initials, but also with the letters S-D-G, which stood for Soli Deo Gloria. He wanted to make it clear that God alone deserves the glory for all of his work. You see how Luther restored the dignity of work. All of our daily life is significant and has great purpose to bring glory to God. This is why Francis Schaeffer said, there are no little people or little places. This is because when you live all of your life for the glory of God, then all of your life has magnificent meaning and profound purpose. That should be so encouraging. And any praise and glory that you do receive in your life, and the Bible says that you will, all of that is owing to God's grace 
And so even that points to the glory of God alone. The, the sola should totally humble us and lead us to worship and rejoice and celebrate. But not only give thanks to God, we should resolve to live our whole lives to the praise of his glory. And moreover, the solace should move us to take the glorious good news of this gospel to the world so that others who've not heard might be saved. Why? So that as grace extends to more and more people, it might increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. The five solas of the Reformation are essential because they're the true gospel. They're the foundation of the church. Without them, we're standing in a building with a crumbling foundation, and we are going to waver and fall. If that foundation crumbles, the house crumbles. We're saved by grace alone, on the basis of Christ alone, received through faith alone, for the glory of God alone, with Scripture alone as the final authority for teaching and defending this gospel. Soli Deo Gloria. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for these truths. We thank you and praise you for the work that was done through Luther and the other reformers to recover these precious truths for the church. And Lord God, we simply ask and pray that you would help us to rest in them, to rejoice in them, and that we would never lose them. God, that we would defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints. God, would you help us to do these things by your grace and for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.